the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the number four episode of the Spiritual Brew Pub podcast. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and today we are going to finish up the topic of 12 fake claims of Western Christianity. We've dealt with the first six, and we're going to go through number seven through 12. But before I get into that, I want to put this topic in context. When I left the evangelical movement about 15 years ago, I was on the tail end of a faith crisis. I had just come back from Africa as a missionary, and uh, I had some serious depression and anxiety issues going on uh, that were linked to that experience. But uh, I was really in kind of fed up with the way that uh, most churches that I was attending and in the, the missionary movement that I was part a part of um, was uh, uh, misrepresenting Jesus. What the way I would would put it, misrepresenting what I thought the Bible was te- teaching, and um, I was be- uh, and also some churches were. Uh, I was recognizing how some churches were actually becoming spiritually abusive to their members um, and also becoming far too politically conservative for my for my liking. So I started to do some research on my own and to dis- and discover for myself what was really true behind the scenes about what we were taught in, in a lot of these contexts. Um, because mostly the answers I was getting when I was doing my uh, you know, when I was asking questions within the within the evangelical uh, movement, was were pat answers. They really weren't satisfying me intellectually or spiritually. They started with uh, questions like, you know, um, why is the why do we believe the Bible is infallible? I mean, I see contradictions in there, um, and you know, questions about you know. Are people really uh, going to hell because they don't accept Christ? Um, you know, why is all we have all this obsession obsession about the end times? It doesn't seem like it's the Bible's really talking about the the twenty first century or the twentieth century. Um, uh, and then they progress to other questions like, you know, why can't practicing gays and lesbians be accepted in the church and be considered true Christians and and things like that? So uh, this research, um, what it entailed was largely, go for me, largely looking at the New Testament more carefully, looking at the original language and meaning, 
uh, looking at the uh, the history of the of uh, early Christian history and the Re- and the history of the Reformation and uh, things like how was the Bible compiled and um, the history of how we got our church structure, institutions, and and beliefs about what church is. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the discoveries that I made today in this the second part of this ep- uh, episode. Um, uh, the fake claims uh, s- numbers 7 through 12. Okay, number 7 fake claim is the, what I call the substitutionary atonement scam. Now this has to do with uh, what people would tell you or preachers would say, what is the meaning of the, of, uh, the cross, of Jesus' death on the cross? And it kind of goes something like this. You know, you, uh, God's really uh, angry at humanity's sin. Um, you are a depraved individual. You are destined uh, to be judged by God and found guilty and, and going to hell because of your sin. And the only way that you can get out of it is that Jesus has come and taken your place on the cross. He's, he's been your substitute. To, uh, so God punishes the sins of humanity uh, through t- uh, the sacrifice of Jesus. And then finally, when you accept uh, that sacrifice, then finally God is appeased. His anger is, is uh, appeased. His demands of justice are, are done. And then he can finally forgive you. Uh, and then it kind of goes from there. But So as I did my study into his- Christian history... What I discovered is that the uh, they really the early Christians did not believe this. They didn't believe that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitute for the judgment of humanity's sin. They did not believe that God could redeem humanity only if Jesus took this punishment in their place. Um, they didn't believe that only if someone formally accepted this saving act by receiving, you know, they used to say, "Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior." Uh, they didn't believe. Only if that happened would a person be forgiven. Uh, they didn't believe that the righteous God, the Son, had to save us from the angry God, the Father. So, in other words, this uh, way of looking at the cross is called the penal substitutionary atonement theory. And uh, it's taught by most conservative Christians today. Um, but it was completely foreign to the earliest followers of Christ. Uh, when you look at history, it's, it tells us that this idea emerged slowly and really started in the 11th century by a guy named Anselm, an archbishop in the Catholic Church. Um, and it didn't really mature until its modern form until the Reformation, and, and in particular through John Calvin, one of the reformers. So another interesting thing I discovered was that Eastern Orthodox theology uh, sees the cross completely differently. Um, this the the meaning of the cross, I should say. Um, it's a, for them, it's a transformative phenomenon, not a legal requirement, as if God can't forgive unless someone is punished. Uh, the de- Jesus' death by crucifixion was not a way to appease God's sense of righteousness, but rather um, more like a historical exhibition of a non-sacrificial way of ending sacrifice. Uh, I won't get into the details of that, but, um, you know, it's kind of like uh, Jesus, despite being scapegoated by an angry mob, some 
corrupt Jewish leaders and the Romans um, uh, who couldn't bring themselves to stand up for an innocent man. Um, basically, despite all that and the torturous, uh, terrible death that he endured, he chose to forgive, to not retaliate. And that's kind of like the core of the, the message of the cross, not uh, some kind of a legal requirement that God had to happen before he could forgive people. So that kind of a, an idea, is, to me, was much more transformative, uh, much more um, uh, satisfying, because the other way just didn't make sense. The way it was described in, in churches, it just it seems like God is angry, this angry God who can't even accept you the way you are um, until something just so drastic happens. Um, uh, so, but the other way of looking at it is that, you know, even when Jesus forgives his most violent enemy, enemies, there is no reason to continue this sacrificial religion. Um, Jesus said in the uh, uh, New Testament, Father, forgive them when he was on the cross, enduring this torture. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't say, Father, forgive them now that I've taken the punishment that they deserve. So uh, through history, the Western church has, uh, since Anselm and Calvin and uh, on into today, today has largely, largely perpetuated a sacrificial or payment view of the cross. Marcus Borg names it a deeply destructive notion. It's like God becomes vindictive. He can't forgive unless there is a human sacrifice. And, um, it continues uh, a religious tendency to see salvation as what Michael Harden calls an economy of an ex of exchange. And actually, that's one of the uh, fake claims that we're going to talk about a little bit in a little bit. But that's the notion that you're saved or you're healed or you're delivered or you're helped or whatever, only if something is given in exchange. So that is the uh, number seven scam. The substitutionary atonement scam. Oh, by the way, um, as I talk about each one of these um, uh, fake claims, uh, I'll I'll give you some suggestions for some books or uh, sources that uh, where I got some of this information. One of them is for the number seven one is the uh, original Christian gospel. Uh, it's an article or booklet by James Bernstein, an Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, priest. Um, has a very good uh, article about the history of how uh, people looked upon salvation from the very original movement until modern notions today. Uh, another book um, is called Saved by Sacrifice uh, by Mark Heim. So let's move on to um, the number eight uh, fake claim, and this is what I call the end times cl fake claim or scam. Um, and a couple books that uh, you might, um, uh, yeah, I would cite as sources for this one would be, uh, one of them is, was written years ago, but it was actually a very good uh, book. It's called Last Day's Madness by Gary DeMar. And um, Gary DeMar is actually, ironically, a conservative Christian, and I would probably disagree with him on almost everything else he, he wrote. But he, this book, he actually does a very good job to, to expose... Um, why it's just kind of a fallacy to, to believe that we are in the end times today. N.T. Wright also has a lot of good material on, on the end times. And also, um, 
A first century historian named Josephus wrote a book called The Jewish Wars. Um, that's a very old ancient document, but it's, it's readily available. You can read it. Um, and it, it goes into um, uh, what happened in the first century. So those are some of my sources for this one. So the, the bottom line for this is um, when you really look under the hood and look at the uh, New Testament writings about what Jesus called the end of the age, um, and you look at the history of the first century, you discover that Jesus did not believe or teach that he would return to earth in judgment thousands of years in the future to set up his kingdom. Uh, he actually taught that the kingdom of God, or more accurately, the reign of God, was already in our midst and, in fact, was within us. Um, nor did he teach that he would physically return within the lifetime of his followers. Um, Jesus used very common cosmic imagery, uh, language, from the, that the Jewish prophets often used to describe the end of the Jewish sacrificial age, you know, the, the end of the, the temple Judaism. Um, you know, he used the phrase end of the age, not the end of the world. Uh, he wasn't speaking about the end of the world, but rather the end of an era. Um, uh, some of that example, oh, his language, like when he said the coming of the Son of Man, uh, this was not some far-off future primitive form of space travel he was talking about or a rapture of believers, but it was a statement that, uh, that he and his message of peace would be vindicated. Um, you can see some of this um, uh, cosmic imagery in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah at one time said, God will come to Egypt in the clouds. This was the kind of language they used about, about the, uh, some kind of a, a geopolitical, social, religious change that was coming to the Jewish people. And so they would use this kind of language. But it wasn't talking about the end of the world. It was just talking about uh, the end of an era uh, that was ending and, Ju and God was doing something different or something different was coming on the people. So, um, you know, th this notion that I'm expounding here probably flies in the face of what many you were taught or most of us were taught in churches. You know, Jesus is coming soon and et cetera, et cetera. We could be in the end times. There's been a lot of books written about it. Um, uh, most popular these days was the Left Behind series and even a movie that Nicolas Cage starred in um, about uh, being left behind in the last days and and if it happened today, what would it be like and so forth. Um, but the one of the things is that uh, uh, this is kind of read in. This all all this idea is is read into the New Testament. It's not really derived from a fair reading of the New Testament. Uh, it's also there's also mistranslated words um, in the New Testament. Um, you know when it says go into all the world and um, uh, preach the gospel, and then the end will come. Uh, and so people interpret that as oh, you, everyone, the whole gospel has to reach the ends of the earth before Jesus comes back. Well, uh, Jesus was talking about going into the uh, the uh, gr the Greek word was the region or the political area where you live. It was really talking about the Roman world. It wasn't talking about the whole world. 
And uh, so actually the first followers of Jesus did go into all of the Roman world pretty much. Uh, and then um, something happened that uh, uh, n- notated the end of the era. And that something was, of course, the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple way of uh, temple and the way of uh, that whole way of uh Jewish religion that's centered around the temple. Um, Sometimes uh, people who preach the last days actually completely ignore the plain words of of Jesus himself. Like, for example, when he described what would happen in this tribulation period and then the end when Jerusalem would be destroyed, he said, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. Uh, So, he wasn't talking. He was. He was saying it would all happen within one generation. Now, what were these things that he was talking about? Well, they were the catastrophic events, both uh, before and during the destruction of t- the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, what the New Testament calls the tribulation at the end of the age, and it's very interesting. The other part about this is that if you looked at that book I mentioned, uh, the Jewish Wars by um, Josephus, uh, a first century historian. He actually goes into fairly good detail uh, of of what happened in 70 AD, or I should say the Jewish revolt. What historians call the Jewish revolt occurred um, between 66 and 73 AD. And uh, this is what Jesus was talking about. It was uh, a revolt by the Jews, um, that culminated uh, in the middle of that period in the destruction of Jew- Jerusalem and the temple. Um, and Josephus records this. And he also, it's fascinating to read how m- so all the other events kind of surrounding this dovetail with some many of the sayings of Jesus. Um, and notice that that revolt lasted seven years, and that was what the tribulation was supposed to be in Revelation. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is that, um, the, f- the new, a fair reading of the New Testament and taking into account the first century, the history of the first century, uh, these things that were, were mentioned, uh, were talking about things happening in the first century. They weren't talking about things that would happen, uh, thousands of years in, in the future. Um, even the book of Revelation, go read the very first verse of the book, it says, this is going to tell you about things that will soon take place. I wasn't talking about uh, far in the future. So that's the uh, end time scam. Um, There's actually a lot of material on this as well. And I've just given you a few uh, resources that I've found helpful. Okay, let's move on. Um, The number nine scam or fake claim of Western Christianity is what I call the misogyny scam. So it's not a secret that there's a deep prejudice against women in Western Christianity. Women can't become pastors. Uh, They're considered more fundamentalist churches. They're supposed to submit to to men and, and, and their husbands, etc. Uh, there's um, they, they really only have kind of uh, uh, support roles. Um, uh, evangelicalism calls this complementarianism, which is a way of ba- basically saying that uh, God, oh, well, God accepts everyone as equals, but uh, not the roles that they play. 
men can only be pastors and leaders and have authority in the church. Women can't. They play a more supportive role. So this is kind of the narrative that's being that was spouted out there and certainly was in the churches that I went to. Never went to a church where the, the women woman could be a pastor. Um, uh, and so what I discovered in my um, research was uh, the history of the New Testament of the early Christian era and the New Testament uh, really turns this notion on its head. Um, uh, history is full of solid evidence of, for example, men changing the translations of Greek terms um, so that they would insert their bias uh, in uh, against women. And I'll give you some examples. One of the books, the main book I'd like to uh, cite as the the resource for this one is called the Source New Testament. Um, it's by Dr. Anne Nyland, and it's not a, a typical uh, translation of the Bible of the New Testament. It's it's got a lot of notes about why she translated certain things a certain way, and and a lot of notes about the historical context of the New Testament. It's called the Source by Dr. Ann Nyland. You could look it up and Google it and go on Amazon and find it. But um, basically what this is this reveals is um, is that how how the the New Testament uh, was mistranslated in certain areas in this case uh, involving uh, women. Um, f- one example would be there's a woman in the book of Romans that Paul cites named Junia, uh, and she was called wor- uh, worthy and honorable among the apostles. She was basically called an apostle by Paul. Um, one of the early church fathers, I forgot the one um, offhand, but uh, cited her once and said, oh, what an amazing woman she must have been to be cited as an apostle by Paul. And um, But in, in the English translations of the New Testament, her name was actually changed to a male form for centuries, uh, a, a male form being like Junius um, instead of Junia. And so that's just that's one example of people actually changing the Bible uh, so that it would look would would reflect their own bias against women. Um, another one would be um, Paul also um mentions a woman named Phoebe in the Book of Romans. And uh, at one point, she is um, actually, the text says that uh, Paul calls her um, a presiding officer at a local gathering. Um, The Greek is actually talking about, uh, the word is actually uh, a word that denotes someone of a chief rank, who is a leader or a protector, and all the the uh, New Testament translations d- translated as something like a helper. Oh, she was a great helper. Well, the Greek word is actually means a leader of the gathering. So, what uh, the equivalent of what we might call a pastor. So that's another example uh, of of the of the bias of of translators and. Um, that's why this source New Testament is a really good resource. It, it, it goes into why something is mistranslated and what the, the more accurate translation is. And in this case, 
Phoebe was a was a leader or a pastor of a local gathering. Um, another mo- really fascinating one is in First Corinthians. Um, Paul supposedly teaches that women should be silent in the churches, which is actually a direct contradiction to what he says in other passages. Um, but this has actually been revealed as to be most likely a scam uh, because there are two verses that were inserted. And in some copies of the New Testament, they were inserted in one place and some copy, uh, copies they were s- inserted in another place. They show up in two different areas of that, that um, chapter. And, and even some leading um, evangelical scholars have come up, have, have put out this case. Um, most bi- biblical scholars see this pretty clearly, and, and they don't have a problem with it because, oh, yeah, copyists over the years made some insertions or made some changes while they were, um, uh, you know, translating and copying the scriptures. But, of course, most evangelicals, that just doesn't fly very well. But even Gordon Fee and F.F. Bruce have put out this uh, uh, case in in their writings. Uh, Gordon Fee did a uh, commentary on 1 Corinthians years ago that went totally below the radar most evangelicals. But basically, that that little passage that says, women should be silent in churches, that's not in the original uh, letter that Paul wrote. Um, So those are some of the examples um, of why um, the this this notion that women can't be leaders, uh, that they should you know have a supportive role, so forth, does not line up with history and the original Greek um, uh, words and meaning behind Paul's teaching. So that's that's the number one scam, and we'll we'll move on here. I mean number nine scam there. Sorry. Um, so the number ten scam is what I call the morality scam. Now, the book I want to cite for you on this one is called The Subversion of Christianity by Jacques Lull, a French theologian. Uh, This is a very uh, good book. Um, It was originally written in French and translated in English, so it's a little bit awkward in the translation, but it's it's not a bad book, and um, uh, it's an excellent book, I mean, but it's not a bad translation. Um, but this is the uh, Jacques Ellul. What he does is basically in that book he talks about a lot of things about why Western Christianity is really uh, real Christianity or real teachings of Christ have been subverted, and and uh, Christianity is being misrepresented or Christ is being misrepresented in, in most of Western Christianity, and basically uh, this is the notion that um, you know the Bible is kind of like this. Uh, you know this moral code that we we follow, and uh, uh, Jacques Ellul uh, reminds us that actually, in Jesus's teachings and even Paul's teachings, the whole one of the main points that they that he makes is that um, no the the law the way that God spells out a law in in the Old Testament and says do this don't do that do this it just doesn't work. Um, that's why uh, Jesus and Paul start talking about love being the fulfillment of the law. Uh, Jesus said that uh, love God and, and love your neighbor sums up the law and the prophets. 
And so it, they're, they're constantly going back and saying, you know, you really can't um, uh, live a, a good life by always just nitpicking on the law because there's always exceptions to the law. There's always, um, we don't know uh, what people are, law can't uh, predict every possible scenario. It can't know every person's inner motivation or adapt uh, to the ever-changing requirements of, of loving people in, in, in different historical contexts. So well, this, could, this will be uh, the, uh, the quote of the podcast. Uh, maybe there will be a, another one too, but this will be a good one to have. Uh, this is what Elul says. God's revelation has absolutely nothing to do with morality. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He goes on to say, the revelation of God and Jesus is against morality. So, basically he's saying the whole point of Jesus and Paul's teachings is that the, the will of God, what God wants, the, or the rationality of God, can never be fixed in a set of commandments or morals. You know, it, must, it really must be born in, in someone's heart. I mean, you know, it starts in the heart. And so this is why Jesus attacked uh, the most legalistic moralists of his day, the Pharisees, because they were so legalistic about everything, and everything had to be just right and could never have exceptions. And they, they, they criticized him for uh, working on the Sabbath. Uh, but, you know, this is why Jesus did stuff on the Sabbath to help people, because uh, you know, that was the right thing to do. Um, that's why he declared all foods clean in the book of Mark, uh, because it's ridiculous to have a, a, a system, a moral code that says oh, certain foods are clean and, and certain foods aren't. And this is, um, you know, Paul says things like, um, uh, everything is lawful for those who follow the way of love. Uh, what counts is not to be moral, but to be loving. If you just engage in loving behavior or live a life of love, that fulfills any commandments of the law. Now here's another uh, quote by uh, Elul. Um, He says, this freedom, he's talking about the freedom that you have in in, uh, following Jesus' teachings. This freedom does not mean doing anything at all. It is the freedom of love. Love which cannot be regulated, categorized, or analyzed into principles or commandments. This takes the place of law. The relationship to others is not one of duty, but of love. So if you don't get this point, um, uh, this is, uh, you'll do things like, um, for example, this is why the evangelical church basically rejects uh, gays and lesbians, the LGBT community, um, because they they see some kind of a, a a law or code against homosexuality, in in the only five or six passages where it's mentioned, um, and uh, they make it into a rule, a law, and they can't budge because that's the way they view the Bible. Whereas when you realize that there really is no moral code, it's only a a love code, then you realize that. What really counts is not, you know, following everything to the to the letter, but just loving people. So, if the LGBT community, 
um, is a community or people within that community are loving people and they embrace the love ethic of Jesus, they're perfectly welcome in the church or to become, to be a Christian. Um, that's, that's the, um, conclusion that you would come if you realize that, uh, the, uh, there is no real moral code in the Bible. There is only a love code. So, um, like, like anything in life, um, sexual orientations and sexual behaviors, um, they cannot be, they cannot be condemned by religious taboos. Um, uh, the, the only way they are constrained is by love. As long as anyone, whether they're heterosexual or someone in the LBGT uh, community, as long as anyone commits to living a life of love, in other words, not to harm others by their behavior, they are equals in a community of faith. Okay, that was number 10. Um, before we go on to number 11, um, very briefly, I want to let you know that the next podcast, I'm going to be interviewing someone. I'll be doing my first interview. Very excited about that. Her name is Barbara Simons. She wrote a book called Escaping Christianity and Finding Christ. So we're going to have an gr- interesting conversation with her. Um, she's got an amazing story to tell. And uh, she, I think um, we have some common ground, have some common experiences that we'll talk about. And I think she would, uh, she would uh, be really good, uh, give some really good um, life experiences from her uh, herself coming out of fundamentalism and, and where she's found a home. Okay, the next one is what I call the scam of spiritual exchange or an economy of exchange. And this is the notion, and, and the writings or books that I would cite would be uh, Michael Harden's got a great book called The Jesus Driven Life, Reconnecting Humanity with Jesus. Uh, he talks uh, some about some of this, and he recites a lot of Rene Girard's work. Rene Girard um, talks about this n- as well. And um, anyways... Uh, this is the notion that, you know, there's some kind of an economy of ex- exchange set up in the spiritual world. And if you want God to do something for you, you basically have to make an exchange. Uh, you have to pray. You have to accept Christ. You have to, you know, do this, do that, go to church, obey the Bible. Um, you'll be you know, in the Old Testament, it was it was kind of thrown out there as, you know, you obey God and everything will go great. You don't obey God, you're going to be punished and everything's going to go terrible. So um, it but it's this notion that you you have to uh, to tap into God. Um, some kind of an exchange has to has to take place. You've you've obeyed him. So now things will work out. You've done something. So now things will work out. You haven't done it, so that things won't work out. Um, and when I was in the inv- evangelical movement, I was in a lot of uh, charismatic churches, and uh, um, they had this notion that um, uh, God would bring revival to you know to the, to to the world or to your country from time to time, and we were obligated to pray for revival. And so that was a big deal. You know, it's like, 
oh, you know, we expect God to, we believe God's going to bring a revival. So people would pray for it and you'd read material about revivals in the past. And, 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 um, what happens, what happened is that, uh, uh, you get in this mindset that, um, you know, God can't do anything or doesn't really move unless you do something, you pray harder, you fast, um, you know, they would cite Bible verses, why this was the case, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I once heard a, a fundamentalist leader say that God doesn't do anything unless uh, prompted by our prayers. So, um, you know, with, with that kind of a notion, it's kind of like thinking to yourself, oh, is that the way God is? And is that the way you are with your children? Do you not do anything for your children unless they ask for something? You know, if they ask for something, you 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 would respond to them. But what about when they don't ask for something? They don't know what to ask for. They don't. Uh, they need something, and you know, a loving parent is going to provide for them and do things for them, uh, whether they ask or not. So the scam is that uh, actually Jesus taught the exact opposite. He said that God knows what you need before you ask Him. Um, he basically told people, hey, don't pray publicly. People pray publicly to kind of show off in, in, the, in the streets or in the synagogues and the churches. But just pray, go in your room, pray privately. Um, he actually taught a very short prayer as, as, as a, a way to pray. Um, and use very few words. And, and, you know, don't be like the pagans or the people who think that they're going to be heard more if they if they pray more if they pray publicly or if they uh you know they go on and on and on god already knows what you need uh access is already there um and uh as far as fasting goes uh you know jesus basically said don't draw attention to it if you do fast don't draw attention to it so anyways um these are some of the uh the the things that uh, I found in my experience in the evangelical movement that I would call an, an economy of an exchange. Um, and I, I don't see that in, when I look carefully at, at Christ's teachings that there is such a thing as an economy of exchange. God, he doesn't need his arm twisted uh, to act. So the number 12 uh, scam or fake claim is um, what I call the scam of justifying war and violence. And when I first became serious about um, following Christ way back in the late 70s, early 80s, and I read the uh, New Testament throughout in one, pretty much almost in one sitting, um, I was really impacted by one, one amazing thing, and that was... Um, I actually figured if I'm going to be a Christian, I must be a pacifist. Because to me, it was very clear that Jesus taught his followers, you know, to love their enemies, not to resist an evil person or evil movement or conquest with violence. Uh, he he exemplified nonviolence uh, re- resistance. Um, and as Paul put it, um, you know, don't overcome evil with more evil. Don't overcome violence with more violence, but overcome evil with good. 
And so I thought this was one of the most revolutionary messages in the world. Um, you know, this whole notion of, of, of loving your enemies and, and trying to befriend them, actually, and, and uh, sh- you know, show them just like God actually loves everyone, you love everyone, and, and don't, don't perpetuate uh, a cycle of violence or a cycle of revenge and so forth uh, or hatred. So to me, that just translated into be, man, if there was ever a war, I guess I'd have to be a conscientious objector. I'd have to be a pacifist as a Christian. So then I went into the evangelical church and, you know, got involved. And then I found out that actually there were no pacifists in the evangelical church. I couldn't find one. Um, I talked to people, asked questions. I was at Labrie Fellowship once uh, uh, in Switzerland. Uh, that's kind of like a spiritual retreat that Francis Schaeffer set up and and uh, I was I visited there once and that was one of my big questions why aren't we pacifists and they started telling me about the just war theory and uh, other people told me about this and you know they say oh well even read this even C.S. Lewis agrees with this you know like in World War II we had to fight the Nazis and and so forth and so on and and I found out I discovered that in most in most churches um the military was was really uh, honored in the and 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 rightly so in many ways, but in a, in a way that really disturbed me. Um, uh, you know, there was never any uh, question about being involved in the military. Uh, if you were someone, someone said, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna join the military," they were encouraged. People would say, "Oh, yeah, I was I was in the service," and so forth. And it was all just this great thing. No one ever questioned anything. Um, and I found that to be quite strange because, because in my, you know, we had just come out of the Vietnam War when I first became an evangelical and, you know, just a few years before. And, and that was a, you know, very, talking about a questionable war. Uh, you know, I find that as I look back on it, read history on it, it was obviously a misguided and ill-conceived war. And, um, we, you know, but the, the evangelical church, you know, never, never a peep about this whole issue about wh- wh- whether we should be involved in, in the military complex of war, and and even even though people said, oh yeah, there's a just war theory, no no one ever said, well, does this war apply? Have we done it? No one ever talked like that. It was just complete acceptance of whatever our country was doing as far as um, being involved in wars and and mil- and and the military. So what's really fascinating is that about this is when you go back and you look at history, history of the earliest church, earliest uh, first century Christianity, or in, and on up to the third and fourth century. And the historical facts are quite amazing. Um, for at least the first two centuries of the faith, followers of Jesus were taught to disavow military service. Uh, the books that I'm going to tell you as resources for this one is one called The Underground Church by Robin Myers and um, My- Michael Harden uh, has a some good material on this and I think I've got a quote for you from him and um, and even Rene Girard like I mentioned uh, uh, he's, he's got some really um, good things to say about this topic as well. So the point is that it, if you look at uh, first century, uh, early Christian history, um, 
it was exceedingly rare, if not unknown, for Christians to be in the military. Um, and I'm going to give you some quotes from Michael Harden's book, Jesus Driven Life, which the subtitle is Reclaiming, S- Reclaiming, oh no, I, I'm getting that mixed up. It's uh, Jesus Driven Life. Um, he, he, here are some quotes. One simply never finds evidence that Christians justified military service as a possibility. Um, you know, so there's uh, 200 years of basically Christian pacifists, uh, early church fathers, uh, Tertullian, Cyprian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and some guy, I can't even pronounce his name. <laughs> basically, when you look at these guys, there's a common opinion that violent retaliation was foreign to the spirit of the gospel. Oh, actually, that was part of Michael Harden's quote, I see. <laughs> so, um, anyways, uh, even into the early 4th century, another, uh, someone called this guy named Eusebius, uh, they call him the first Christian historian, uh, he avowed, uh, uh, disavowed military service, and he was a pacifist and, until later on when he was influenced by Constantine. So, um, uh, what we find when we look at history is that all the way up until the fourth century, uh, Christians were pacifists. There was, they were disavowed military service, um, and it didn't come about until Constantine became emperor. Emperor before uh, there was a change and there was a switch. Um, uh, there was a switch from nonviolent and violence and peace to justifying violence, in 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 contexts so and robin myers calls this the great reversal something happened at that time things change and it and the emperor constantine when he became supposedly a christian he began to make these changes and arguments that there is a a time to justify war because that's that was his um philosophy he he had he didn't he did not really in my mind become a real convert to Christ. He was kind of using Christianity to unify the empire because they're uh, for various reasons. So what's really ironic about this part of history is that um, Constantine became emperor, uh, changed so much in Christianity. That's a whole nother topic. It's amazing. And um, stop, but stopped the persecution of Christians by the empire. But ironically, what happened is that eventually the church began persecuting itself. So um, persecution really didn't stop. It just got transferred over into the the Christian church. And uh, that's a very fascinating fascinating study. And here's another quote from Michael Harden in that same book. This just blows your your mind, but uh, I think it it stacks up to uh, a, a study of history. In the hundred years following the ascension of Constantine, more Christians died at the hands of Christians than had died the previous 250 years at the hands of the Roman Empire. So um, that's just an amazing uh, to think about that. So after Constantine, um, Augustine, who was uh, later in the 4th century, um, he began to... Uh, influenced the church to justify coercion using violence uh, to say that that was justified 
and you know to to get a confession to help people repent and uh that's that's kind of uh it was the, a theology that that justified persecution and later uh inquisitions and burnings at the stake and all that stuff that was going on later on down through the centuries so uh and finally augustine also laid the foundation of what we now uh call the just war theory uh, which is a way of that the church justified violence. So um, that's the, the very last scam, scam number 12, um, that uh, there really is no, when you look at church history, there really is no way of justifying um, our uh, Christians' involvement in war and violence, uh, or at least we can have a debate about it, but it's not a... Whatever, however you see it and debate it, you can't base it on what the Christians did in the first uh, three or four centuries. Uh, they were pacifists. So that ends this episode. Uh, thank you for listening, and remind you that the next episode we're going to have a uh, interview with Barbara Simons, the author of Escaping Christianity, Finding Christ. She's got an amazing story, and some we'll discuss some ideas around that. So um, we look forward to seeing you next time, and have a good one. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.